Welcome back, everybody, to the Big Cat People series of podcasts. And in this first series, we've called it our story, Becoming the Big Cat People. This is episode eight, and it's called Africa to Antarctica. Up to this point, I think I'd achieved many of my lifetime ambitions, certainly in as much as doing something with wildlife in Africa. That dream that I had as a kid growing up in England went to university, went to the wonderful school, Christ Hospital, which nurtured my love of nature and biology, went to Queen's University, Belfast in Northern Ireland, read zoology, and had always hoped that I might be able to, in a sense, escape from academia and do something out in the wilds. A dream, certainly, one which I'd been told was probably more like a pastime than something that might be a career that would sustain me, certainly in terms of being able to finance living in Africa, doing something with wildlife. Well, I'd succeeded. I had, with Brian Jackman, co-authored the story of the marsh lions, the lions that we still watch to this day. I'd written a book called The Leopard's Tale, fledgling author myself, and then gone on to write books about wild dogs, the Great Migration, more books about lions, and had been blessed with a stroke of good fortune in the form of this beautiful lady with the long blonde hair, Angie, Angela Bellamy. And she and her two children, Alia and David, had, in a sense, filled a vacuum, a vacuum in terms of family life, had answered for me the question that sometimes would loom large in my mind as I headed for 40, well, what about a real relationship, not just a relationship that you pick up and you discard if it doesn't suit you, casual relationships with beautiful people, but ones which are destined to go nowhere long term. How would you find somebody who could share the kind of life that I was living? Well, you have to be very fortunate. And you needed to have somebody who understood the world that I was living in. Africa, East Africa, the Maasai Mara, who loved art and photography and spending time in wilderness, who could sit quietly in a car as if they weren't even there. And it felt as if we were the joining together again of two spirits that had somehow been split and had then come back. We'd found each other and we'd found this extraordinary love. And as Angie said, great relationships are based on a competition of generosity. And Angie has always been incredibly generous in helping me to realize my aspirations and dreams and I would like to feel that I have done the same and it's been an incredible partnership and against all the odds not just living the kind of life we've lived but also in being photographers a very singular rather selfish existence one eye behind the viewfinder but we've been able to form a team where we can actually enhance our ability to work with whatever our subjects might be whether it was lions leopards you name it And in 1989, so around the time, sometime after I'd met Angie, I had the opportunity to be a presenter on a first in the area where I was working, which was to be a presenter on live television beamed from the Maasai Mara in Kenya, all over the world, not just to Europe, but to America, 
to Japan, and it was called Africa Watch. And it was the genesis, the genesis, in a sense, of a relationship that I had forged with a young guy when I was a young guy at Mara River Camp who came to visit Keith Scully, who went on to have a glittering career. He still does with Alistair Fothergill. They have a company, Silverback Productions, which produce many of the wonderful David Attenborough productions and um, are really at the top of their field. And Keith became head of the Natural History Unit, as did prior to him, Alistair Fothergill, and they now, as I say, are in partnership in an independent production company making wonderful natural history programs for the Natural History Unit, BBC, who they were once working for, but also as independents. And Keith had come out to the Mara as a youngster from university, and I had shown him around a little bit. We had done some extraordinary things together down by the river crossings, watched the marshlands, and in fact, I'd introduced him to the marshlands. And that was back at the time, 1982, when The Marshlands was published. And so seven years later, Keith and the other people in the Natural History Unit were ready to try to do something which they'd done in the UK and as a national outside broadcast. And now they wanted to do it in Africa. And that was going to be tricky because they would need to beam those pictures. So they'd have to have the ability to beam the pictures out via satellite and the fact was they weren't it was going to be difficult to do it directly by through a satellite dish and they were told yes okay you can do this broadcast it'll be great for kenya it'll you know bring the marshlands to even greater attention and the wonders of the masai mara but you can't just put up a satellite dish and send it out without it going through the official channels and that meant that the images the broadcast would have to go via a link to the longer not satellite station in the Rift Valley in Kenya. In other words, because of security, the country, and that's fair enough, it was their jurisdiction, wanted to know exactly what was going on and who was transmitting what. So we set up in the Masai Mara in 1989. Governor's Camp uh, outfitted a camp for us, and Jock Anderson, also a great friend from East African Wildlife Safaris, was involved. And they set up a camp. Uh, it was in one of the governor's campsite called Crocodile Camp, alongside the Mara River, bordering Marsh Pride Territory. And um, governors provided the site, Jock put up the camp, and we were then there for two weeks. And we had a production centre, so we had a barrage of television screens where the person who was coordinating the images as they went out and was going from one camera to another, the pictures they were producing to create the programs themselves. And it went on, as I say, for a couple of weeks. We broadcast maybe over 10 days live. And it was an extraordinary uh, experience for us. Certainly, <laughs> the marshlands had a field, field day because the young sub-adult marshlands went up to the production tent, which was situated on the little ridge overlooking Musiara Marsh, where the spring itself, which feeds the marsh, emanates from. And it was a wonder, you know, we could look out over the marsh and it was the perfect place to have, you know, headquarters as such. And the lions came in and they just trashed it. The cables, the tables, whatever it was. I think the Ascaris, our guards, had fallen asleep and the lions had a field day. Anyway, we managed to sort that out. And it was a co-production between the BBC and, and the Discovery Channel in the US and also NTV, 
which was the uh, Japanese national broadcaster. And that meant that I had a chance to meet with one of my photographic heroes, a gentleman called Mitsuaki Iwago, an incredible stills photographer and videographer from Japan. And when I was working on books on wild dogs and the Great Migration, I happened to come through in Gorongora Crater and in Dutu. And at Ndutu camp, where we were based, I saw a book on islands by this Japanese photographer and I opened it up and I had never seen anything quite like it. There was something totally different. His vision, his eye was very much what I then became, became synonymous for me of an Iwago picture. And then I saw somebody in a red Toyota Land Cruiser in Ngorongora Crater when I was coming backwards and forwards in those days working in the Serengeti. And it was Iwago. And I didn't have a chance to talk to him at the time, but I saw him and I was very impressed by the mount that he had on the side of his door, um, a mount which he could put his big lenses on. So it was a video head, a fluid head, where he could get his um, 180 degree swing of his camera and it gave him total flexibility. And I was still using a, a table mount with bean bags at that point. But I looked at his setup and I thought, well, that's the way to go. And he produced at some point later a book on the Serengeti, a big format book. And again, it was quite extraordinary. Anyway, Iwago, who I'd never met, but I was enthralled by his work, was one of the presenters for NTV, NKV. Now, let me get this right. Um, <laughs> OK, we won't bother with that. But it was the Japanese national broadcaster. And he was there when we fed our pictures to Japan. He was interpreting it into Japanese. And so we became firm friends. It was wonderful to meet him. I was delighted to know that he had actually had a copy of the Marshlands book and uh, thought it was great. He loved it. He said it was really good. I think he was being rather kind. And he told me the interesting time when I said to him, you know, I saw that mount on your door where you had your open window and then you had the mount actually on the door and you could put the camera on through your open window. And he told me a lovely story as to when he fell asleep at his wheel one day in the crater, it was very hot. And he woke up to feel a sort of, a sort of wet, rough, rasping on his forehand which was rest on the the open window and it was the lioness licking the sweat off his arm she hadn't yet got round to munching on it and of course he yanked his arm back in very quickly I'm sure she snarled and you know slunk away but um, as I say he was there for a couple of years produced the most extraordinary images and I just would look at his work and think you know how come he's producing that when I've been here for many many more years and my pictures look nothing like his and I said to him I said look you know be brutally honest give give me you know what what do you think he said well look you're taking very nice pictures he said you know they're neat, they're tidy, he said, but be more adventurous. And he was used to getting down low and getting under his car and doing all kinds of things, some of which, you know, you might say, well, OK, is that being a bit incautious? Are you, you know, endangering your life? Are you disturbing the animals? We can argue, argue it till the cows come home. But the fact was, when he said be more adventurous, I think he wanted me to actually not stay within my comfort zone as a photographer, not just to take the obvious pictures, see the shot, click, there it is. No. Think to yourself, what can I do with this situation? What do I want to say with it? What's exciting my imagination here? And um, we had Richard Leakey came down 
the uh, who was head of the Kenya Wildlife Service at the time when we were filming. And uh, I, I remember seeing Iwago, who very politely said to Richard, would you mind if I take your picture? You're one of my heroes. And Richard said, no, sure, go ahead. And my the presenter, the main presenter on Africa Watch was a lovely man who had been a war correspondent in the Vietnam War, Julian Pettifer, handsome, rugged, and wonderful on television, a great sort of, you know, journalist and also a wonderful sort of front man to, pre- to be the main presenter on Africa Watch. And I was there with him throughout as his co-presenter. So it was a great opportunity for me to work with Julian, learn, you know, how to, to, to go about these things. And um, Leakey came down and Julian was inter- interviewing him and I watched Iwago and it was magical. He almost danced effortlessly around Richard Leakey, the way the the camera was just like part of his hand. Click, 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 move back, move across, whatever was, not right in Richard's face and stuff. And he showed me the pictures later and they were just wonderful. He'd captured the essence of Leakey. And so he had this incredible eye. Anyway, so there we go. We're sitting, myself and uh, Julian are sitting on a log overlooking the spring. And we had various uh, camera cars out there with a recording device and a little satellite dish, um, you know, which they can record the images. And those were then going to be beamed live from the different camera positions. And they had to be within a certain distance. We didn't have that great a range in those days. Uh, They had to be relatively close to production center and uh, they were beaming back images. So we concentrated a lot on Musiara Marsh, the dry season heart of the Marsh Brides territory. And it was during the wildebeest migration. So we got some amazing stuff. You know, as we say, the marshlands and Namara always delivers. But first morning, we do the first show and Julian and I afterwards, they're exhilarated. You know, I can remember, I love live television and the music would come on and the titles and then we would get the, you know, counting down one, two or two, five, what does it go? Five, four, three, boom, you're in. And we'd start chatting about whatever it was with um, Julian leading the way. And it was so exciting. So we get to the end of the first program and we're euphoric. We're all high fives and excited and thinking that was amazing. And then we get the word back from the head of broadcasting to say, guys, it looked wonderful. But from the US, the message is it's broken up and it's in black and white. And this was meant to be, you know, high quality, high definition or whatever it would have been, the highest quality color TV from the Mara in all its glory and no crackling and all that nasty noise that you get when things go wrong on your television screen and you lose your picture. So something was very wrong. Well, it quickly became apparent that in needing to send our pictures out via Longanot in the Rift Valley between Mara and Nairobi, the links that were in there weren't, they weren't the right ones. And the BBC technicians had said, we need to get in there and actually sort this out. And the authorities were saying, we don't need anybody to tell us what we're doing. As far as we're concerned, everything's in order go away. Anyway, by chance, Richard Leakey came in that first morning. We told him what the problem was. He said, hang on a minute. Went away. Five, ten minutes later, he paced around a bit, came back, came back. He said, okay, fine. He said, you'll be fine for the next show, which would be the following morning. He said, "Uh, I made a phone call. 
So we said, well, what do, what do you mean you made a phone call? He said, I made a phone call to the president. And he said, the president has sent somebody to say, let the BBC come in and do their job. Let's not mess around. This is a great opportunity. There's nothing fancy or funny going on here. Let's get the job done. That was the power that Richard Leakey had. When you could pick up the phone, a hotline to the president of the country, you could get things done. And that was exactly why he had been so successful in just locking down on the poaching problem, the killing of the elephants and the rhinos when he came in, in the 80s, and was able to turn it around because he knew he could pick the phone up and speak to the president. If anybody, for any reason, tried to mess with the system, for as long as the president had confidence in Richard Leakey, he was the man. What incredible power to have to be able to do that. But you only get it, hopefully when you're the right person in the right job, and he certainly was. So 10 days, live television, it was extraordinary. As I say, the marshlands produced, they were killing wildebeest, wildebeest were, and we had some what we would call inserts, little video inserts, which were being taken while we were not broadcasting by our camera crews out of distance, out of range of being able to send them out live. So we had little video clips of great action with cheetahs, leopards, lions, wildebeest crossings, which we could feed into the live broadcast and say earlier, totally honest, but earlier today or two days ago, this is what we had with our camera crew down by the river. So it was fantastic. Great success. Everybody loved it. And... By the end of it, uh, Julian Pettifer, who... So this is 1989. In 1981, Julian Pettifer had a show called Nature Watch, which he featured various people working with wildlife. And I was one of the people, this young guy who could draw the animals, pen and ink drawings, who was photographing them, who was making a name with himself, with the marshlands and with that first book. 1981, Julian made one of his shows of Nature Watch on my story. So I knew him already, and just by chance, he lived close to where my sister did, or he had a house close to where my sister was in Boxford in Berkshire. So we became great friends, and by the end of it, he I, I was just so excited. This live television, I just thought, this is perfect. And a, a word of warning to anybody who, who wants to be a presenter or is cast as a presenter, know what you're talking about and you're fine. Don't try and bluff it. Don't try and be cleverer than you are. Just be informative, be enthusiastic and just seize the moment and try not to talk to the pictures. That's such a classic. If there's something appearing on the television screen and it's a crocodile biting a wildebeest, don't say, wow, look at that crocodile biting the wildebeest. No, you could say, you know, the only reason the croc's able to do what it's doing is because it's got 66 teeth and it's got a jaw like a gin trap. And when it snaps that down, the point pressure on their teeth, anyway, you need to know what you're talking about. And I didn't want to be, it wasn't a career choice to be a television presenter. I was chosen because I knew what I was talking about. So I felt very comfortable and it worked. And by the end of it, Julian said, well, he said, we've got to figure out what's next for you. He said, what we need for you now is for you to actually be the lead presenter on your own series. And I just thought, oh my goodness. You know, this was miles, this was a world away from, as I say, my childhood in England, growing up, reading zoology. Yes, I'd written a couple of books. Yes, I'd taken out television crews and shown them where to find the lions and things they wanted to film. But now, 
the possibility to actually present my own series. Well, this was 1989, and that wouldn't happen for a good few years, but the seed was sown with Keith Scully and Alistair Fothergill, these great friends, huge admiration for all the work they do. They were in, they've transformed the BBC Natural History Unit in those days. And later, I would benefit from that close relationship we had and the trust that they had in thinking that I could possibly be one of the presenters for the future. So... At some point um, in, let's think, so that was 1989. So, well, a couple of years later, Abercrombie and Kent. Now, remember, they were the safari travel company who owned Kitchwatembo, which was where Angie and I spent time, where I was living as the in-house naturalist, where Angie was working as the buyer and as the manager of this chain of shops for Abercrombie and Kent, Mrs. Kent. And so we had a very close relationship and Jeff and Jory Kent were great friends and great allies and they ran a, ran a very, very efficient, high-class travel business. And they contacted me at some point. They said, look, we are selling space on a ship called the MS Explorer. And the MS Explorer, a.k.a. the Little Red Ship. Now, I had heard about the Little Red Ship which was this expedition vessel, painted red and white, which went to the Arctic and the Antarctic. And it was the brainchild of Lars Lindblad, this extraordinary Scandinavian who wanted adventure travel, wanted to take people to the ends of the earth, take them to places that most people wouldn't think of going. Too risky, too expensive, not possible. Not for that kind of man. And it was a great match because A&K, Jeff Kent, very adventurous, loved the idea of new ideas. So they took the contract to sell space on the MS Explorer. And at that point, it was uh, uh, Lars Lindblad, I think, had passed on by then. His son was in the business, but they no longer owned the little red ship. But it wasn't owned by Abercrombie at that tent at that time. They were actually selling space. And 1991, they took over that particular part of the operation and they said Jonathan we'd love you to go on an Antarctic expedition and basically be one of the guest lecturers tell people all about Africa and what wonderful trips that A&K provide and what an amazing place Africa is to visit and get to know a little bit about the Antarctic and Show some of your images, help people with their photography, tell them how to take better pictures. Now, the little red ship in question, I knew also because of one of my great heroes, Peter Scott, who became Sir Peter Scott, one of the founders of the World Wildlife Fund and an amazing artist and son of Falcon, Captain Falcon Scott of the Antarctic, who led the expedition that got to the South Pole but didn't beat Amundsen, the Norwegian, to it, and who died on their way back. And Peter Scott's story, you know, on a different level to mine altogether, but we were both artists, we both loved wildlife, we both lost our dads before we ever were able to meet them or know them. And so in some ways there was a, a, a synergy, there was a resonance. And plus, I, when I published 
The Leopard's Tale. There was an exhibition by Kodak, which ran for three months at the Natural History Museum, which I virtually lived on or lived in when I was studying for my O-levels, A-levels, and at university. I loved the Natural History Museum. It was a great way to learn extra information. And I had this major exhibition, which Julian Pettifer actually opened in 1985 by Kodak, and Peter Scott happened to be around at that time at the museum and he looked at the exhibition and I happened to be there at the time and he came up and he said amazing he said I've I love Africa I've traveled in Africa and he said I know how difficult it is to get great pictures which aren't just portraits of leopards fantastic I sent him a copy of the book he sent me some lovely letters which I, I treasure and so there was this lovely world. Peter Scott used to go to the Antarctic as a lecturer on the Little Red Ship. And he'd avoided the Antarctic for a long time because he didn't want to be sort of cast in the shadow of his famous father, Captain Falcon Scott, Scott of the Antarctic. And so I went to the Antarctic, my first journey. And the first trip was Antarctic Peninsula. It was it started in the Falkland Islands and then it went to the Antarctic Peninsula, the Wiggly Tail, which runs back towards South America from the Antarctic continent. And when I arrived at South America to get onto the ship, um, I noticed a lot of people with these sort of funny little sticking plasters behind their ears. And I thought, I hadn't read my pre-briefing, pre-departure notes. I just winged it. I just was Antarctica, fantastic, want to go. Yep, got me. The biggest thing, of course, was to make sure I had my cameras and my Swarovski binoculars with me. I wanted to make the most of it from that respect. Anything else? Yes, I had a, I grabbed a warm jacket and, you know, I didn't have a lot of the kit I probably should have, but I was going to learn as I went along. Well, those little ear patches were all about seasickness because particularly... If you go to Antarctica, you cross what's called the Drake's Passage. And it's that 600-mile open water between the tip of South America and the Antarctic continent. And it can really rock and roll. And the fact was, the little red ship, as wonderful as the ship she was, was an old ship. And she had a rounded hull. She didn't have stabilizers that the ships have in the, in these days. And she rocked and rolled across the Drake Passage. And you were very like liable to spend time in your cabin being sick as a dog. Anyway, I didn't know about that. Yes, stupid, didn't do my due diligence. Anyway, fortunately, there were seasickness pills on the plane. There was a little basket by reception. And if you were feeling not great, then their pills were there and you could take them and they would, you know, hopefully stop that awful seasickness motion as you rocked and rolled across the Drake Passage, open water, huge waves and, you know, whatever it was going to be. Well, guess what? I was doing the first lecture of the trip and we would be midst the Drake Passage and the lecture theatre was on the top deck. In other words, the highest point virtually on the ship where the actual going, rocking and rolling left to right, swinging up and down was magnified. And guess what else? The food on these ships is to die for. French cuisine in this instance, five courses, making that seven with the little tidbits in between the sorbets or the little chocolate dips. French cuisine shrimps, lobster, fish, roast beef, especially for the roast beefs, the English, and all these extraordinary 
dishes. Well, I went for it. I was thinking of nothing other than, oh my goodness, I've lived in a tent for most of my life. I've been eating yeah, nice food, but also lived in my car on, you know, Kenya Meat Commission. I'm going to make up for it. Anyway, I went to bed and the boat, I tell you, and I'd had a couple of drinks. It was sort of, you know, one of those celebratory first evenings. And I was determined not to throw up. And so I rolled around on my bed in the cabin. And finally, at about six o'clock, I just gave into it, went into the shower. We won't go into the details, but my God, was I ill. I was green. So then I head to the lecture theatre for t nine o'clock. Obviously, missed breakfast. Wasn't going to bother with that. All set up for my presentation. There was a motley and rather, well, there was a lot of free spaces on the seats in the lecture theatre. I clung on to the lectern and tried to point the little clicker in the right direction so as the pictures would change. Oh my goodness, I have never forgotten it. But one of the things that happened on that trip, apart from just being totally blown away, I mean, Africa and Antarctica, strangely enough, were part of the same continent a long time ago, 200 million years ago, Gondwana land, the great southern continent, which gradually broke up to give us those southern continents. And Africa and Antarctica were part of that continent. So they were together. They were part of that. It's a lovely sort of thought. And on that first trip, I just thought, oh, my goodness, I have to get, I have to bring Angie back here. She wasn't able to come on the first trip. She had things to do with our son and our daughter. And one of the things that I was told by the crew, who were wonderful, the little red ship was just the most extraordinary ship. But I was told, if you ever come back, the best kept secret is you have to come on a trip that includes the island, sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia. And so I did. On the next trip with Angie, we came back to Antarctica. So this was 1991, this would have been 92. And we made a trip which took us for three days to the island of South Georgia, a God-forsaken place, famous as being the place that Ernest Shackleton managed to go with six men in the James Caird, to rescue the men he'd left on Elephant Island after their, the, 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 their ship had been crushed in the ice. And so we came back and they describe South Georgia as the Serengeti of the Southern Ocean. It's a rugged, desolate, it rains most days, it can snow, it can be godforsaken. But when the sun, even when the sun doesn't come out, it is the most amazing place. I mean, just listen to these names, Salisbury Plain, St. Andrew's Bay, Gold Harbour. These are bays around the island where you will have massive tens of thousands of king penguins, these most glorious birds breeding all year round. And as I say, it was the point which Ernest Shackleton, where he'd departed on his transantarctic expedition in his ship and the ship had found it in the ice been crushed in the pack ice and he then as i say eventually with six of his men there were six in total um came to south georgia looking because it was a whaling station and he was coming looking for hope that he could get a ship to come out back to elephant island where the rest of his men 20 plus men were stranded 
after more than a year, but probably nearly two years. The most extraordinary story. And Ernest Shackleton was one of my, became one of my great heroes once I began to know about him. Because, you know, as they say, if you're in a hell of a fix, it's, and it's, it's Shackleton that you want to come and rescue you. And by chance, he'd been a pupil at Dulwich College. Now, I was at Christ Hospital. And rugby was the big game. And I loved rugby. I played for the first 15 for three years. And Dulwich College were always our bête bet noire. If we could beat them, it was just like a miracle. And certainly in one of the years I do remember, we did manage to beat them. And I also remember my great chum, Jimmy Anderson, who was the hooker, the first scrum, right in front of the headmaster. And they had a Welsh coach, the secret ingredient. It might even have been Gerald Davis, the lion. But the fact was... That first scrum erupted, and there's Jimmy, bound in between his props, who has just been thumped by their second row. First scrum, just to sort of loosen him up. It was that kind of that, that kind of era where, you know, the second row would drop his shoulder and clout the opposing hooker who was trapped between his two props. Anyway, Jimmy was having none of it and was lashing out, and I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to get expelled. But we won that game. Anyway, Ernest Shackleton went to Dulwich College, this tough place and we would used to go and to Dulwich College and we would get the chance to see the lifeboat the James Caird a 20 foot 22 foot lifeboat which Ernest Shackleton and a handful of men managed to go 800 miles from Elephant Island across this awful ocean and landed on the wrong side of South Georgia. 36 hours, they managed to cross it, like, you know, hardened veterans, like special forces, something the special forces themselves struggled to do to recreate later times. And he eventually managed to save all of those men who were stranded. And so this was for us the beginning of a 20-year love affair with the frozen South. And Angie and I often think about those glorious days sitting out on the deck, eating our lunch, just going through the Le Maire channel. They used to call it Kodachrome Alley because Kodachrome 64 was the transparency film of choice for all wildlife and nature photographers, delivered great colours. This was before digital. And the number of rolls of Kodachrome 64 that got burnt as people went down the Le Maire, this narrow Le Maire channel with these extraordinary um, mountains on either side and you just cruise down and there were snow capped and there was icebergs in the water and there may even be whales and ah oh, you'd just sit there and glorify and then you'd you'd go out in the uh, zodiacs because you're on the ship and you travel around but then every so often you stop you get into the zodiacs into the rubber inflatables and you go ashore amongst the penguin colonies a lot of the animals and the birds are completely unafraid of people and it's fur seals it's elephant seals it's king penguins it's everything you could ever want for and we over the years would go to antarctica and we would often go from either chile or from Argentina. And Argentina had a very special connection for Angie's family because her mum was born in Cordoba, in the mountains in Argentina. And her so her mum and her uncle Johnny were born on this estancia. And her granny, Dorothy, and her grandfather, Hugo Salmon Backhouse. Google that name. In his obituary, it said that he spied for the Brits. First World War and Second World War. He rode with Lawrence of Arabia. 
He was one of the best polo players in Argentina. This is a gringo. And he captained the Argentine polo team in 1936. And his team also won the Argentine Open, which Angie and I went to see uh, on one occasion on one of our visits to Buenos Aires. And we went on a wonderful expedition. So on one occasion, on our way back from Antarctica, we stayed for a few days in Argentina and we went to a polo ranch and then we went in search of Hugo Backhouse. And we found the lady whose family had acquired the house where her mom was born, up in this hill country in Cordoba. And we then got a taxi and got directions to find the Estancia. It was a polo. It was... Hugo managed this ranch and they raised polo ponies. And we went in search of Hugo and we found the house where her mum was born. And there was a gaucho. When we drove up in the taxi and we weren't sure, is it the right place? We stopped. The taxi driver spoke to the gaucho, said who we were, what we were trying to do. He said, sure, sure, sure. Come, come, come. And we could look around the house or from the outside and then look across this wild hill country where pumas range and where Joy and her brother Johnny would have rode bareback as kids, were homeschooled by Dorothy. And Hugo wrote a book among the gauchos and he was just the most legendary person. And so we, at one of the places we stayed, Uh, on that trip, we came to the uh, Estancia and then there were horses out in the paddock. So Angie and I came out with our cameras, took some pictures and a man came up to us. So this was where we were staying prior to going to the taxi, with our taxi ride to Joy and Johnny's home. And um, this man came up to us and he introduced himself and he said, hi, are you staying here? We said, yes, you know. And um, we were photographing the horse. He said, I just want to, he said, I'm the head gaucho here. And I immediately, you know, interjected and said, well, you know, my wife, Angie, her grandfather was, uh, you know, lived in Cordoba. And he said, I, he said, well, I'm going to tell you what his name was. So Angie just stared into the face of this handsome gaucho. He said his name was Hugo Salmon Backhouse. And the tears started to flow down Angie's face. And he said, your grandfather had the polo ranch, the horse ranch, the estancia next to my grandfather's. And as a kid, I grew up with stories from my grandfather of this crazy gringo who could speak Spanish, Argentinian, as well as any of we could who's celebrated with our family and his family the arrival of children, who rode like the wind, who had adventures, who you expect. He said, Hugo was a legend. Well, what an extraordinary story for us. And so the Little Red Ship, well, as I say, we went, we did, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 expeditions, but then at one point, Uh, The Little Red Ship was sold by Abercrombie & Kent, who had eventually acquired it to Gap Expeditions, and it foundered off the South Shetland Islands. Unfortunately, after just maybe five hours in the lifeboats, people were rescued. But it was a reminder of how, you know, it's a very long way off when you're in the frozen south, and that all those sort of, you know, the first... Uh, 
briefings that you're given as to, you know, evacuation points and how to get into the lifeboats, how to have your life vest on, etc., are extremely important. And then we started traveling after the little red ship went down. It was actually brought back up again eventually. And we got lots of emails as to good. We read about the little red ship because it was World Nice News. It was a legend. And uh, fortunately, we weren't there at the time. And a lot of people were very worried that we might have been. And then we started traveling with Exodus Quark expeditions. And we did an extraordinary journey, a semi-circumnavigation on an icebreaker called the Captain Klebnikov. And I always remember somebody said to me, it's easy if you're struggling to remember the name, just think of Corn on the Cob, <laughs> Captain Klebnikovs. And they and this ship was an icebreaker and it was um, outfitted with two helicopters which could go ahead and see the state of the pack ice and there would be an ice master. This was a Russian ship, as you could tell from the name. And there was this extraordinary ice master on two trips, that semi-circumnavigation we did, and then two later trips to Snow Hill Island to see the emperor penguins. And this man, I mean, he looked like he was cut from ice, shaved head, and he would, I can't remember how many flights of steps there were on the various levels of the ship. Let's say there were seven. We would meet him going up and down and round the ship as his form of exercise. And he was ripped, if that's the right way to put it. But he was a lovely guy. And you would see him at times. If the conditions were challenging, the ice master would be up with the captain, staring with those blue eyes out ahead, looking into the nothingness, the whiteness, and would be just telling the captain, OK, this is the course. This is what we need to do. Do we stop? Do we send the helicopter ahead or not? And so on that same ship, semi-circumnavigation from Ushuaia all the way around to New Zealand. And we did a, a lovely expedition around New Zealand and saw the wonders of that. And what an incredible island that is, not just because of the all-black rugby team, the friendliness, the solidness, the authenticity of the no-nonsense people. Friendly, tell you what they think, no bullshit, just great people. And so that you know, those journeys that we did, we flew up in a helicopter and were able to take some pictures. And if you're ever flying from a helicopter in a situation like that, be very careful because we were wearing yellow jackets because they were part of the bright yellow um, kit that we were given as passengers. So as when you're on shore on the snow, either red or yellow, very easy to pick people out and see whether where all your passengers are. But if you're in a helicopter and you've got your red or yellow jacket on and you're taking pictures through the perspex window or glass windows, perspex windows, you want to be very careful because you may well end up with a reflection of yellow or red on your image. So in those circumstances, you don't want the jacket on. You want something neutral in terms of color. So um, we did this extraordinary trip. It was a month's trip. We went uh, to the Ross Sea. Uh, we, we just you know, our first glimpse of an emperor penguin. Angie took a beautiful picture of the Klebnikov when the captain put it up on the fast ice at one point and this emperor penguin came out of nowhere and it just stood there. Maybe we were the first people it had ever seen. And then at some point it raised its bill to the sky and it called with that wonderful voice of the emperor penguin, maybe calling for its mate or a mate. And we had read a book called Worst Journey in the World, which was the story written by Cherry Garrard, who with Wilson and with another man and uh, 
Birdie Bowers. These three men went in the Antarctic winter to try and actually discover whether the emperor penguin really was a link between reptiles and birds, which was what was thought at the time. And they went to Cape Crozier, this God-forsaken place. So the darkness of the Antarctic winter, freezing conditions is when the emperor penguin breeds. And these men went, trekked, whilst prior to actually Scott and he, the rest of his men, two of those men, so Bowers and Wilson accompanied Scott, when he then went to the South Pole, same expedition, but this was the winter. Then when summer came, they went. Cherry Garrard stayed behind. The other two men, Bowers and Wilson, with Scott, perished on the way back. Cherry Garrard never really got over that because he went out to look for the men on their way back. And he always wondered whether, you know, if they'd gone a bit further, that they might have found the men stranded in their tents and rescued them, but they didn't. And, and it was a lifelong uh, trauma for Cherry Garrard. But anyway, he wrote this book described by um, some great writers as the, 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 the best travel book ever written, Worst Journey in the World. And boy, oh boy, I tell you what a story that was. And uh, certainly, you know, for Angie and I, the, the contrast between Savannah, Africa, and the colours of Africa and then the colours of Antarctica, because you could easily spend your whole life in one place, the Masai Mara, like we've spent so much time, and never bother or think of travelling anywhere else. How much can you do in a lifetime? But the chance to travel from Africa to Antarctica, in exploring a fragile Eden. We're, we wrote a book, 2007, exploring Antarctica, exploring a fragile Eden, celebrating all those extraordinary um, things that we were able to to do on that little red ship. And Angie and I, I think it was some of the happiest times of our life and quite extraordinary. And in fact, I remember on one point being on the ship and Angie and I were up on the deck with the captain and we're looking out onto the, to the front of the ship and it's, it's a horrible weather. I mean, it's like a blizzard. And we see this little old lady, a little German lady who we'd met. And she's walking out and she goes and stands right on the point of the front of the ship. And we're all thinking, my God, you know, she's going to get frozen. And people went out with blankets and whatever it was. And she just turned them away and said, no, 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 I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'm fine, please. This is a special moment for me. And with us, you know, being writers and photographers and stuff, we, we, we wanted to know her story. So we talked to her and she said, look, she said, I spend most of my time in a one bedroom flat in a city in Germany. It was either Hamburg or Berlin. And she said, I dream of my trips to Antarctica. And if I can, every year I try to come back, I save all my savings, my pension. And she said, I look out of my window onto a tiny little bit of green. And we all know how healthy that is uh, as opposed to looking out onto a mile of concrete. So a tiny little piece of green with a tree. And she said, it's my sort of source of, of you know, renewing my spirit. But she said, when I come to Antarctica, I want to savour every moment. I want to get cold. I want to feel alive. I want to understand this extraordinary place, which to me is beyond reality. What a what a wonderful thought. And, and, and we just... We all celebrated her and that sentiment when we went back inside. So Angie and I, you know, it's quite extraordinary in a sense because we came from such different directions. Angie was born in Africa. 
She was brought up in, born in Alexandria, brought up in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, loves the ocean, loves being on ships, has sailed yachts. Um, and it, she was living and, and, you know, she had bush babies, mongooses. You know, there was a little dormouse that would, you know, love to come and sit up over her ear, you know, up in amongst that long hair. Um, there was, you know, Sam the Dormouse. There was a genet cat called Spots. And then there was the vervet monkey that used to come around and would get so excited and, and was really naughty. And he would jump up onto the, the light fittings in the, in the dining room, uh, you know, when he was meant to be being put out uh, and, you know, or put safely where he was kept and, and would pee on the guests. And, and it was, you know, she had this, there was the dwarf mongoose, Mong. And so there were all this, and bingo, that's right, that, that, that vervet monkey, bingo, the peeing vervet monkey. But there were all these, you know, which were her, instead of cats and dogs, she had these extraordinary friendships with these animals, which were never not able to be in the wild, but they were part of her existence. And there, strangely, was me in England, lapping up on stories like that, and wanting to, you know, yearning, loving, thinking about how could I come to Africa and live the life that I dreamed up as going to be the most adventurous one I could ever have, have hoped for. So that was pretty tame stuff. I mean, I grew up on a farm and my mum raised corgis and, and um, uh, what were those other ones? Corgis and, oh, I'm trying to think of those. Oh, bull terriers. That's right. My, my gran and my brother, my uncles up in London, they always had bull terriers. And, but mum had corgis and bull terriers and she'd breed them and sell them and it helped make a bit of extra money on the farm to help put us through school. And um, I think that, you know, that kind of life, you, you get so many people who, when they hear we live in Africa and we do what we do, they all want to know what's the most dangerous thing that's ever happened to you. You know, you must have elephants, buffalo, lions, rhino, surely. Tell us about when you nearly got killed. Tell us some snake stories. Well, Angie had talking snakes, my God. When David was little and Angie was down at the coast, he was in a cot in the house and a python which was four meters long. Yeah, four meters long, maybe even a bit more. She came into the bedroom where she had left David in his cot and there was this massive python as thick as your thigh, curled up motionless beneath the cot. Yes, it wasn't, it was a happy ending for David but Angie called for help and I, I, I went to, but it made the newspapers. But, you know, you want snake stories? Well, there's one like that. Have a python that's thinking about something nice and warm, which it can sense that mammalian warmth, potential food. And, you know, yes, we have been chased by hippos and buffalo. And, and as I've always said, you know, you get yourself into trouble. You know, the wild animals basically want to be left alone. And so we could tell you lots of stories which would make it seem all wild and dangerous. And as we know, stories of professional hunters who have had all kinds of tangles with animals that are extremely upset because they got shot. Well, no wonder. But interestingly enough, one of the scariest protected moments which actually we've had with wild creatures was on a subantarctic island when we had gone on our way to New Zealand and Campbell Island, and we had gone to see the Royal Albatross, these beautiful birds which were nesting. 
and there was a walkway certain up from the, you know where we docked the ship and then there was a walkway and then the walkway ran out and you're up into the bush so to speak and there's a lot of this sort of dwarf um you know new zealand shrubbery and trees which are a sort of you know they're almost like bonsais but they they can look big and substantial and then you try and climb one up you know and and they fall over um, you know lord of the rings kind of stuff so we were told by our expedition leader who was a bit of a he was quite a character he was a lovely guy when you got to know him but he was built like a bear and he was a bit gruff and he was very serious and i don't think he knew quite what to make of this chatterboxing box uh you know brit from africa and and his gorgeous blonde wife anyway he told us look be very careful when everybody goes up keep to the boardwalk and if you happen to meet a sea lion hookers sea lion which are breeding at that time of the year um on the boardwalk which because quite often they come up and down it he said come back to the ship well we set off and we're streaming ahead because we're hoping to get some pictures quickly before everybody else arrives. So we're legging it as fast as we can up the boardwalk. And what do we see? A huge male hooker's sea lion harumphing down the wooden planks. So I turned to Angie and I said, Angie, let's just step off. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll go straight by. Really? It didn't. So... It came straight towards us. So I stepped off further into the bush. And this thing now is coming through. And I've got a tripod and I've got my big rucksack on my back. And I've got my tripod and I immediately fall over. It's, it's classic. It's like what happens in Africa. You get chased by something. Your head, your legs are running faster than your brain. And invariably, you either trip over the person in front of you who's running also to try and get away from the buffalo. Or you just trip over because the adrenaline is going too quick. Your legs are going too quick. So now I fall on my back, my rucksack. And I've got both feet up with these big gum boots, And I've got my um, tripod extended and i let stream i let rip with a stream of swear words i tell you i could never i didn't even know that i knew some of these words i just let this hooker's sea lion have it so my feet are up its mouth is open it's got big teeth it's making a horrible noise i've got my thing and then it goes back down and slithers off you could just see the grass rippling as it moves off and i look round no Angie where's Angie I'd said to her look you know just get behind me go back a little bit anyway next thing I see this surge of movement through the vegetation and I'm now running and I'm falling and stumbling over these dwarf bushes and trees and I see Angie appear further down and she tries to get up one of these little shrubs and it just sort of collapses and I see the ripple going towards her and I am shouting and screaming and thinking bloody hell you know the adrenaline's pumping and then the wave of movement disappeared and the hooker's sea lion headed down to where it wanted to get to which was down to the beach where the breeding activity was going on and it was full of testosterone it was absolutely up and of course they it was just doing its thing its normal thing it sees something and thinks oh you know are you a competitor so it puts on a bit of a display and it would bite you if it could but as i said i had the gum boots and the the tripod ready and basically it wants to intimidate you and it if you run it wants to run after you it's chasing 
you know, you're a, you're a rival. Anyway, I get down to Angie. She is shaken. She has damaged a disc in her back. We hobble back up to the walkway. And I'm thinking, how in hell am I going to explain this to old Captain Grizzly Bear back at the ship? So we go back for our briefing. People had said to us, they said, we saw you down there. What, what, was, what, what was there down there? We wondered what, what, what you were up to. We, it wasn't that we weren't allowed off the walkway. It's just easier to go up the walkway. But what we should have done, Angie, I shouldn't have thought that somehow I knew better or that I was experienced or off. I knew nothing about these hooker sea lions other than with fur seals and sea lions. They can bite and they can... The big thing is, as opposed to true seals... A fur seal or sea lion can bring that tail flippers up underneath it and can push off and it can run faster than you can. It's not a wiggling sort of, you know, slug in a bag like a true seal, which just harumps along. No, this thing is accelerating and quick. So we get back to the ship. And I very bashfully think I'm going to own up. I felt like a kid at school. You know, if you own up, you won't get into trouble. And I said to Grizzly Bear, I said, listen, you know, I've got to tell you. And in fact, actually, I think he asked me to say something at the, the sort of, you know, the debrief when everybody talked a little bit about, you know, what's your highlight? And I said, well, actually, I've got a confession to make. Um, I, I did what I did and I told you and, and stuff. And I said, all I could think of at the time was not how badly I was going to get mauled by the seal, but how badly I was going to get mauled by the grizzly bear, i.e. you. And he said, yeah, he said, I could just see the headlines. He said, I can see it in the newspapers. Big cat man mauled by hooker. And I thought, yeah, okay. <laughs> Anyway, so that's our Antarctic adventure. That's what it's been like doing these extraordinary things. And one last quick story. Yes, elephants. Well, filming elephant diaries coming into camp and there was a water drum sunk, you know, for the elephants to come and drink. So there was a uh, a 40 gallon drum, 200 litre drum, which was sunk into the ground and water. And we, as we're coming into camp, there's a group of elephants and there's one huge bull with them and he's in musk but he seems pretty relaxed and we came into camp stood by our tents which were in a semicircle around this area where the waterhole was and we stood there and I said to the camera crew uh, my great chum Toby Strong I said Toby and his wife um, I said who was doing the sound I said okay let's set up here we can do a little bit about a musk bull so the bull comes in he goes over to the water Toby starts filming. I turn and I say, you know, it's extraordinary with these elephants here. I said, this is a bull. You know, he's got urine dribbling down the inside of his legs. I said, he seems fairly relaxed. And at that point, someone over out of it, well, not out of earshot, but out of vision, the bar was over a little ways round by one of the other tents. And it looked out onto this water, you know, where the water drum was. And there was a I don't know what happened in there, but there was a lot of racket between people. They were either laughing or joking. And the bull's head came up. And as its head came up, its tail came up. And I thought, not good. So I said to Toby and his wife, I said, quickly, grab the camera. Just leave the camera, which was, you know, a very expensive $50,000 camera and lens on the tripod. I said, leave it. Don't even think about it. I was hooked up. She and no, he, Toby's wife unhooked himself, unhooked herself from the um, from the camera because she was doing the sound, and I then grabbed her and we and Toby ran 
around the back of the tent. And at the sight of our movement, so upset by the sound of the people at the bar, then spies our movement as we decide to get out of there, this elephant came towards where we'd been. And it just flung its trunk out, knocked the camera and the tripod onto the ground, and then went down on its knees and jabbed its huge tusks into the soil, just throwing up clods of soil. The tripod went up and landed in a bush, and it just absolutely trashed the ground and then got up and ran off. So, you know, we saw this and we came back. And anyway, then all the staff came out. Our producer came out and said, oh, my God, I thought you guys, you know, what was going to happen? Were you going to be killed? Staff came out and said, oh, you know, we're so sorry. And it was very sweet. They got the tripod off of the um, off of the bush and they, they were sort of dusting it down and the camera and stuff. And we got the tape out of the camera. And in fact, you see the elephant turn and then you see nothing because it came out of view of the camera until it smashed the camera. And the So there was no dramatic picture, not that we actually, that was our intention. It certainly wasn't. We wanted to be safe. And then I said to the, to the people, I said, you know, the, the, to the watchman, I said, my God, you know, this elephant they said oh yeah no we we know this elephant this elephant he does this he's he's he can be really stroppy he's very very you know unpredictable so i said well thanks a lot for telling us and they said oh yeah we call him tyson so there we go episode eight africa to antarctica lots more to come in the last two programs and do remember to check out our website for news make sure you register you um you know so as you get our newsletter and know exactly what's coming from us next do please check out our first two ebooks on wildlife photography first one is basics for beginners and the second is the story behind 10 iconic images and so we hope you've enjoyed this and we hope to see you back here next week take care bye bye